exactly 100 years ago today, the armistice between the Allies and Germany was signed, ending the warfare, land, sea, and air, ending the Great War, ending World War I. A year later, Wilson sent a message to the nation, and it was the start of the first Armistice Day that now has become Veterans Day, and we'll officially celebrate it on Monday. We all need long weekends. And it allows us to attend the parade of the veterans, 11 o'clock downtown. Oh, by the way. One reason we mention it in church today and shape our worship around the commemoration is we have a number of veterans in our congregation, men and women. And we also have many civilians who've worked in support of the military and in support of the veterans. Actually, none of us are untouched by the glories and tragedies of war. If you are willing, would any veteran willing to stand up, stand up and allow us to recognize you. I say we applaud. Stay, wait, stay, stay standing. Because I would like to add, we have some people doing some really significant work with veterans, civilians. So if you would stand too, those of you who've worked for Veterans Affairs and now I'm going to applaud you all. Thank you for your bravery now. Thank you for your bravery then. So despite this Banksy painting we're using on the screen and on the order of service, my sermon is not an extended plea for peace. I actually hope I make that argument in some form or fashion in every time I'm in the pulpit. Instead, what I'm interested in today is that threshold that a person crosses changing from active duty to veteran. A transformation has to take place within each troop member upon returning to civilian life. It's a change from a uniform to whatever clothes. It's a move from a highly regimented life to ambiguous. It's a path away from inevitable intense relationships and experiences into a more meandering route through the vagueness of modern life, family life, work life. I'm not a veteran, nor do I come from a military family. So I speak as an outsider informed by books and magazines and movies and news and conversations with vets. My, colleague, my peers are of the Vietnam era. What I'm interested in is this turn from being a troop member to becoming a civilian again, becoming a veteran. You know, the formation of entering the military and joining a troop is scripted. It's very carefully crafted formation. We continue exploring the idea of formation this month. 
And this formation involves very clear steps to almost anyone and to take almost anyone and turn them into a member of the military. It involves recruitment and assessment and basic combat training, advanced individual trainings, specialized schools, assignments, possible deployment. It's clear. But then, becoming a vet, the undoing steps to reshape those experiences for a return to civilian life are not so carefully laid out. It can be abrupt. It can be welcomed. It can end in shame or in glory. No one experience is universal, just as the end of many phases in life are seldom seldom clearly marked. A military veteran's transition can be difficult and messy. So vets, if you will allow me to generalize, in a sense, we're all veterans of one life turning into another. We're all veterans of significant transitions. If you're married, you're a veteran of the single life. Divorced or widowed, a veteran of marriage. We're veterans of childhood. Some of us are veterans of active parenting. We can be veterans of a career. We can be veterans of an able body, no longer able to fully use limbs and other body parts temporarily or permanently. And we are all now veterans of the 2018 midterm elections. (laughs) I'm glad those are behind us. So what I'm doing is reframing veteran as an ongoing adjustment forward. Each step you take into the next moment, into a new, different life. While we cannot forget our past, just as no troop member can forget their time in the military, no parent can forget their children, no person forgets a partner, We can use our past experiences to make our way in new circumstances. And these moments of transition are our growing edges. The wise teacher and author Parker Palmer calls a growing edge, or any gateway, the brink of everything. We are always on the brink of everything. Veterans of the military who've worked through this growing edge have much to teach us. They have much to teach us about developing resilience. Resilience is a quality they develop while in military service, but then it's equally required returning to civilian life. Resilience at the brink of everything. So the transition out of the military becomes a metaphor for us all as we encounter significant life-altering gateways that we pass through our life many times. So let's define resilience. Let's define it as an individual's ability to properly adapt to stress and adversity. Go with the flow. 
Ride the waves. Adapt. Think outside the box. Trim your sails. Adjust. Readjust. And resilience is not something you either have or you don't have. It's a set of behaviors, thoughts, actions. Anyone can learn and develop. I'd make the case we're all born with a certain amount of resilience. It's natural. This week um, on the radio is not just, this week is not just um, an anniversary of the end of World War I, but it's also the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, when thousands of synagogues and businesses and hospitals and homes owned by Jews in Germany were ransacked and destroyed. So I was listening to the radio and there were survivors talking about their resilience, where their resilience came from. And their stories reminded me and were virtually the same as what Viktor Frankl wrote in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. When I was looking for quotes, I realized, oh, are you you press, Beacon Press? We were the first ones to print Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. So Frankel describes the pivotal moment in the camp when he develops resilience. He's on his way to work one day, worrying whether he should trade his last cigarette for a bowl of soup. He wonders how's he going to work with the new foreman whom he knew to be particularly sadistic. Suddenly he's disgusted by just how trivial and meaningless his life had become. He realizes that to survive, he must find some purpose. So Frankel does this by imagining himself giving a lecture after the war on the psychology of the concentration camp to help outsiders understand what he'd been through. Although he isn't even sure he'll survive, Frankel creates some very concrete goals for himself. So in doing so, he succeeds rising above the suffering of the moment. And as he put it in his book, we must never forget that we may also find meaning in life even when confronted with a hopeless situation, when facing a fate that cannot be changed he came to name this meaning therapy and used it throughout his professional career. And finding meaning is part of being a church community. It's our collective work. We have tools to reframe stress. Even positive things can place stress on us. These positive events are even gateways on the brink of everything. Imagine your wedding or your children's wedding Remember the moment you brought home a newborn or as a new sibling was brought home to you, perhaps? They're all gateways. One of our sources of Unitarian Universalist wisdom, the Buddhist tradition, gives us a framework for working with all these gateways and these brinks of everything. It claims we're always leaving behind something and turning to something new. Each breath, each thought, each response is a gateway. So we get a lot of practice. 
when you pay attention. The Buddhist tradition allows me to name three useful tools of resilience. And the first is focus on finding the good. Simple, but not simple. To be resilient, you need to be able to find reasons to be optimistic. Hesitate with that word, but it'll do for now. Some way your circumstances may actually be beneficial to you in the long run. It's nearly impossible to bounce back when you're focusing on how horrible the situation is. It's much easier when you find blessings, I'll use that religious word, in disguise within difficult times or identify lessons that are going to help you move forward. And I don't mean that we don't experience difficulty or, or distress. In fact, those, are, those who are highly resilient have a much more diverse repertoire of emotions than those of us who are not. They feel pain, mourn losses, endure frustrations, but they understand that the pain is relatively temporary. They can focus on identifying the positive in the negative. And remember, all feelings are impermanent. I fall into the trap of negativity. When I don't learn to look for the positive, I quickly become victim to the negativity bias. You know, even when the positive and the negatives of a situation are equal intensity, it's the unpleasant and traumatic thoughts that affect us the most. And this emphasis is toxic. Soon we start to complain, we become, vic- we become victims on the brink of everything. Oh, woe is me on the brink of everything. Rather than an agent with choices. If we pause, smile, and refuse to get caught up in the negative interpretations of events, I'm not saying not be real, we become simply experiencers. Like a tree that bends in the wind rather than breaking, we can develop stress hardiness. The Tao Te Ching explains, thus, the rigid and inflexible will surely fail while the soft and flowing will prevail. At first, you know, it seems like there's only one way to interpret whatever adversity you're going through. Oh my God, the world is against me. I can't believe this happened. It's your fault. But in retrospect, though, we often find a chain of seemingly negative events put us directly on the path to something incredibly worthwhile. Resilient people remember this when everything seems bleak. The second rule of resilience is to question your thoughts and feelings. Oh my God, we are Unitarian Universalists and we are trained to question. So use that. Self-awareness, that ability to identify emotions and to question the thoughts that precede them is vital. And investigate this with kindness. Kindness to yourself, kindness to others. 
Highly resilient people will experience reactive emotions like fear and worry, worry, but they approach them in an active manner. They're curious about it. What, what, what's, why is this scaring me? And then you begin to identify the thoughts that led or experiences that brought you here. And then you can challenge them. This is how those who are resilient bounce back. I've been practicing a mindful tool lately to help me stop, notice my emotions, and then literally locate it in my body. Wait, is my neck getting tense? Is it right in my heart? My stomach? Oh. And it's actually just a technique to get you away from whatever's going on, but also what it does is it allows you to stop and then dig underneath. So what is it? Why? Am I feeling this way? Why is my body responding this way? And it actually has allowed me to deepen my understanding of how I react and not be so reactive. Although, someone recently asked me when I was agitated, well, why doesn't your meditation practice help you? (laughs) Could have had a V8. But I realized that my anxiety would be 10 times worse if I didn't have tools to stop and investigate. I am far from perfect. And when I get caught up in despair and worry or depression and woe, when they feel inevitable, it means I have spun out some narrative of my own making. When I stop, take a breath, notice where that is in my body, a doorway opens to a whole different possible set of interpretations and possibilities. I'm able to begin to reframe the situation in different light, often that back to step one in a positive light, look for the good. The last step in resiliency is to run toward pain. Yes, you heard me. Run toward the discomfort. Notice it. Don't immediately push it away. You know, as human beings, we naturally seek refuge in comfort. I signaled to Joe to check the thermostat, and he's like, okay, I'm frugal, it's fine. If you're a little discomfortable today, notice it. That's all. Because our minds and bodies are content following familiar patterns and routines, conserving energy, and hiding from the scary and unknown. Unfortunately, that means we become dependent on external aids like thermostats or, more to the point, smartphones to do difficult tasks or any strenuous thinking for us. And this discomfort-avoiding behavior rubs off into other areas of our life. One minute you're avoiding the pain of being alone by scrolling through Facebook, and the next you may be avoiding your feelings after losing someone close to you, inhibiting your ability to move forward. Resilient people accept painful situations and face them head-on, trusting they can get through it. Military training prepares veterans well for this part of resiliency. 
Use these little moments of discomfort and anxiety in your day as places of resilience. Develop your resilience muscles from setting limitations on checking your phone to having that awkward conversation with a loved one. The same characteristics that make us resilient are the same traits that allow us to live stronger and more enriched lives. So look on the bright side, challenge your reactive thoughts and emotions, and learn to lean in to the discomfort. Then even if life gets you down, it won't keep you there. We can become more resilient as a church. One aspect of our recent 50th celebration is we took a look at both the good and the bad in our past. We can see how we came through lean times or turbulent times. And if we did it then, when it comes back, we can do it again. Resiliency is essential for me, perhaps for some of you, for framing this recent election, no matter your politics. There's always more work to be done. It's not over. The reason becoming a veteran is a process is it become it is a process to become more human. They both require resilience as we stand at this growing edge, at this brink of everything. A while back, someone mentioned a very dark spot in their life. They were embarrassed to admit they had turned to prayer, as if being a traitor to reality. We all need tools to remind us those three steps of becoming more resilient, of the good, of where the pain resides, of how to reframe it. And I, I felt bad because this person suffered unnecessarily twice. The life event caused suffering. But then flogging yourself for using an ancient tool to reframe and be resilient adds needless extra pain they turn to a legitimate tool for recalibrating a habit of the mind, for locating meaning, for self-awareness. Prayer need not be an appeal to a God you don't believe in. In fact, if you say, oh, I'm not the praying kind, but I'm in a weird situation, I suggest we try saying the benediction I use every Sunday as the prayer for yourself. So imagine you're in some sticky, wicked spot. May the love that overcomes all differences, that heals all wounds, that puts to flight all fears, and that reconciles all who are separated, may this love be in me and among all now and always. It might change how you feel about that discomfort you're struggling with. May we all develop the resilience we need as we all stand on the brink of everything. Thank you, veterans, for modeling 
this life-saving skill. May it be so.